0: Matthew chapter 6, continuing uh, through the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, through the Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew chapter 6, and we've been each week just uh, going p- uh, section by section through uh, the greatest sermon ever, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we come to what's probably like, if the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest hits album, uh, this passage is probably the most popular song on the Greatest Hits album. It's the Lord's Prayer. Everybody knows this. Uh, whether you grew up in church or did not grow up in church, you are very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And last week, we kind of looked at the context around the Lord's Prayer, but tonight we're just going to focus specifically on the prayer itself. In fact, the Lord's Prayer actually falls in the dead center of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, this is really getting to the heart of what Jesus is teaching in this sermon. And so uh, let's, if you're able to stand, would you please do so? Uh, Matthew chapter 6. And uh, every song that we sing tonight was all about praising God and exalting him. And there was a reason for that, because I think that gets us ready for what Jesus wants to teach us in this prayer. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Would you pray with me and for me? And let's ask God to teach us how to pray tonight. God, what a privilege it is to look to your word now, to learn more about you. To stand in awe of who you are. To to shape our life around you. And your name and your will and your kingdom. I pray tonight, God, that we would come before you as the disciples did Jesus saying, Teach us to pray. Help us understand what it means to commune with you in prayer. Help us understand as you have taught us what it means to pray in a Christian way. Teach us, Holy Spirit, and guide us into truth, all to the glory of Jesus that we pray. And God's people said, amen. 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 Please be seated. The story took place in an Italian city named Verona. Uh, It was around the high Middle Ages or early Renaissance. And it's a story about two people uh, who came from two rival families and they met and they fell in love. It's Shakespeare's classic Romeo and Juliet. You've likely heard the story or you've read the story or watched one of the 150 movies made about the story. And if you remember, Juliet, unbeknown to her, she was given in marriage to a man named Paris. It was an arrangement that that Paris and uh, Juliet's father had arranged, and their idea was this. They said, we're going to throw a ball, we're going to throw a party, and there is when Paris will win the heart of Juliet. And of course, if you know the story, that's not exactly how it works. The plan backfired a little bit because at that ball, Juliet doesn't fall in love with Paris. Instead, she meets Romeo and the two of them immediately fall in love. And it was on that night at that ball that they determined that they would marry. And if you read the story, you know what happens is as soon as Romeo and Juliet fall in love, they can't stop praising one another. It's just gross, right? I mean, here's just some of the the lyrics that Shakespeare writes in this famous play. For instance, one fairer than my love, the all-seeing sun, ne'er saw her match since first the world begun. Oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright. Or what about this one? See how she leans on her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Or here's the most famous one, maybe of all in the play, But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the son. And all God's people said, disgusting, right? So my daughter would be like, that's so gross, dad. Now, I assure you, that is not how we talk in Tennessee, okay? It's a little more like, she thinks my tractor's sexy, okay? That's a little more the romance in the South. But anyway, I want to stop for just a moment, and I want you to think about this question. I want you to think about this. I share that story for a reason. Is it really all that weird to praise the thing you love? Is it really all that odd to praise and honor the one you love? And we would all say, of course not. That's not strange, that's natural. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who was reflecting on a love story likened to Romeo and Juliet who wrote this, quote, it's not, is it not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are? The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly upon a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and to have to keep silent because the people you're with care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Listen, this is so insightful. Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. What Lewis is saying here is this, It is perfectly natural to praise, to exalt, to honor, to adore the thing or the person you love. And even if romantic language is not your thing, you still do this in all kinds of ways. You praise the thing you love. For instance, if you go to an amazing restaurant of really good food, what you can't help but to tell people, you've got to go eat there. When your children are born, you can't wait to show people pictures, whether or not they want to see those pictures, right? You just cram it in their face. You watch a good movie, and you can't wait to tell others you've got to see the movie. When you became a Christian, you couldn't wait to share your faith so that others could have the hope that you have everybody right here. Lewis is exactly right. Are you listening? We delight to praise what we enjoy. We delight. It is a delight for us to praise what we enjoy. Is everybody listening tonight? That's the fundamental difference between Christian prayer and every other kind. That is the fundamental difference between what is Christian prayer and every other kind. In fact, I would submit to you that it is the main idea behind the Lord's prayer. Why? Because the context which we looked at last week is this. Jesus is warning in this text uh, not to do good, just to look good. You remember that? He's saying, be careful of practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. That is, self must never be the motivation for service. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. And Jesus then gives examples of prayer along with fasting and giving. But in prayer, he gives two examples of people that that make themselves the center of prayer. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the religious leaders, the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners. Everybody say this next phrase that they may be seen by others. Jesus is saying that there are religious people who use prayer as an expression to exalt self. Look how good I am. Look at the words that I used. People are so impressed. Even God must be impressed with the way I pray. That was one example. The second example is in verse seven. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles, so these are non-believers do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And so Jesus is saying, uh, for those that don't worship God, they use prayer like a bartering system. If I say the right thing, if I do the right thing, I'll make the God or God's happy, and they'll get me what I want. And who's at the center of that prayer? You. Please listen to me tonight, faith family. I think this is so important. When you pray in either one of those ways, religious prayer or irreligious prayer, you're praising what you enjoy the most, which is you. The thing that you enjoy, the thing that you delight in, isn't God. It's yourself. Because you either through religious prayer want to look good, or through irreligious prayer just want God to do for you what you want. And Jesus is saying that is not how you pray in the kingdom. But, now notice an important shift here to the Lord's Prayer. Notice this on the screen. Prayer is that originates from a love of God is centered on God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Please tell me you see the context here. There is prayer, so-called prayer, that exalts self, verse 5, verse 7. And then there's real prayer, Christian prayer, that flows from a love of God. And because you love God... Who do you praise? What do you delight to exalt? God. This is the shift. I love those amens. Amen every time. If what you enjoy most is you, guess what your prayer is going to focus on? Talk to me. You. But if what you enjoy most is God, guess what your prayer will focus on most? God. And it really is as simple as that. And Faith Family, if you can remember that one simple thing, you now understand the Lord's Prayer. Because, now before I dive in, let me just give you three general comments uh, quickly before we unpack the Lord's Prayer. Number one is this, we can learn to pray. We can learn to pray. Anytime you bring up prayer, people get intimidated and they're like, I don't know how to pray. Like, I'm uncomfortable praying. Listen, you can learn to pray. In fact, in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples actually asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Is that encouraging to anybody? Like, can you help me know how to pray? And so if you feel like that, if you feel inadequate in your prayer life, listen, you can learn to pray. Secondly, is you can learn to pray the right way. What I mean here is, have you ever been told, it doesn't really matter how you pray, just pray? Well, wherever you heard that, you didn't hear it from Jesus. Because Jesus never said, you know, it really doesn't matter what you do, you know, just mumble something. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says. He's like, pray like this. In other words, there is a right way to pray. You can learn to pray, and you can learn to pray the right way, and what matters most is motivation. We learned that last week. What matters most in prayer is what's your heart, what's your motivation in prayer. And then thirdly is that we can, and I would argue should, use the Lord's Prayer as a guide. Now, isn't it interesting that the very thing Jesus teaches... To break religious rituals has become a religious ritual. I mean, how many of you know the Lord? It's what you say before a a basketball game, or you hear it at a wedding, or churches will use the Lord's Prayer ritualistically. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving you a model, an example, to teach you how to to pray. So you should pray the Lord's Prayer, and you should use the Lord's Prayer as a guide in your prayer life. Is everybody with me? So let's unpack this prayer over the next couple hours. Four aspects, four aspects, all right? Everybody's good with that. Four aspects of Christian prayer from the Lord's Prayer, and I hope that this will encourage, convict us, and teach us how to pray. Number one, is that Christian prayer adores God's name. Christian prayer adores God's name. And honestly, I should probably just camp here all night, because I think this is, is you got to get this right, or you don't get the rest of the prayer. Look at verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. So it's clear, at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, the contrast between the religious type of praying that Jesus gives in verse 5 and the irreligious type of praying in verse 7 that puts self at the center, Christian prayer starts with God. It starts with God at the center. The word hallow or hallowed, it's not a word we use all that much, but it means to honor, to adore, to treat as sacred. This is where Christian prayer begins. And, and notice that it's not a, a declarative statement. It's not, God, you are holy. God, you are uh, majestic. God, you are... It's, it's not that. God is those things, and it's perfectly fine to pray those things, But this is actually a request. That is, God, whatever I ask, I want the answer to be done in such a way where your name is honored. Your name is set apart. When the dust settles at the answer of this prayer, may it be your name and not mine that's left standing. That's a way to start a prayer. And how many of us are quick to get to our name rather than starting with God's name? Notice this on the screen. Christian prayer is always thy before I. It's always God before me. That my mindset going in because he's the one I love, not self. I love God more than self. And therefore I exalt in my prayer God over self. Larry King was asked one time uh, why he did such a good job in his vocation. And here's his reply. Larry King said, quote, I'm sincere. I'm curious. I care about what people think. I listen to people's answers. And I leave my ego at the door. And I don't use the word I. Except every other word, Larry. Right? I mean, there's something a little ironic of a man describing himself not being the center of things by focusing everything on himself. And that's a real danger in prayer. Listen, I would submit to you, this is going to be super practical tonight, listen to me. I would submit to you that the biggest change that you and I could make in our prayer life is simply not like you should use better words or you should be more sophisticated or you know, you should have a right posture. It simply is this, focus more on God and less on you. That's a great place for an amen. You missed that, but that's okay. The biggest change, and by the way, if you're uncomfortable with that and you're sitting there like, but what about me? Therein lies your problem. The biggest change that most of us could make in our prayer life is focusing more on God and less on self. Because Christian prayer is less about getting more from God, I hope you're listening, and more about getting more of God. Let me say that again. Christian prayer is less about getting more from God and more about getting more of God. that's, That's what we want in prayer, not our agenda. We want God. We need God more than bread, which is why we don't start with, give us bread which is tends to be where we start. I have a need and I'm gonna go to God and the first thing I'm gonna do is tell him what I need. Doesn't he know what I need? Give me, listen, you need something far greater than bread and that's God and his name to be hallowed in your life. This is so convicting faith family. This is so convicting. Look at this on the screen. Where your prayer starts likely reflects what your prayer seeks. Can I get an amen? Where your prayer starts often reflects what your prayer seeks. And so Jesus says, if you want to learn how to pray, don't be like the hypocrites and don't be like the Gentiles. They're ultimately delighting in self. That's why they praise self through prayer. I want you to pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your." Very different starting place with the name of God. And now once we spend time adoring God and honoring Him, expressing praise and love for Him, now we're ready to shift to the next part of the Lord's Prayer, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the second thing we learn about Christian prayer, is that Christian prayer accepts God's will. Christian prayer accepts God's will. And I spent all this time setting up the context because context matters in the Bible, right? You don't just jump in and most of us just kind of study the Lord's prayer without the surrounding context. And the surrounding context is self-exalting prayer versus God-exalting prayer. So Jesus is making the point here that you're ultimately concerned not about your will when you pray. You're concerned about, talk to me, whose will? God's will. God, I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. So now that we've spent time adoring God, our heart should be in a right condition to seek his will. So we don't just jump in, do this, God, solve that, God. I want this, God, because that's honoring our name, not God's name. And so what we want to do after we adore him is come to the place where we're genuinely pursuing and seeking his Will. Now, a technical note, I would say, it's interesting, is this two petitions in uh, verse 10, or is it one? Is it your kingdom come, that's one, and your will be done, that's two, or are they both the same? I act, and we, we wouldn't have a big debate over this, I actually think they're the same. I think it's likely that your will be done is an extension of or or a parallel statement to your kingdom come. And here's why I think that. Because in God's kingdom, God's will is the most important thing. In the kingdom of God, the will of God is ultimate. And it always comes to pass. So here's what I think the prayer is. God, I want your will to be done in my life like it is in your kingdom. In other words, in the same way that in your kingdom, your will is always primary, I want in my life your will to be primary. Do you, do you see how that goes? And in that sense, your kingdom is coming to pass in my life. Three things that I think this means, that praying your kingdom come means. Three things, and we'll, we'll hit them quickly. Number one is personal surrender personal surrender. When you pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. You are saying, I don't want to be king or I don't want to be queen. I don't want to be in control. You are waving the surrender flag over your life. God, I can't rule my money. I can't make decisions. I can't lead a church. I can't run a business. I can't love my kids. I can't do any of this in my power. That's Christian prayer. Amen. God, I can't, I'm done. I'm done with my will. I've been king and I've made a mess. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven. You, listen, faith family, you can't be prideful and prayerful at the same time. You can't be prideful and prayerful at the same time. Notice this on the screen, and I've actually said this many times before. Pride is what you have when you are the king, prayer is what you do when you need a king. Prayer is what you do when you've come to the end of yourself and said, I'm done. I'm done driving this ship. God, I surrender. And and, and you're able to do that because you've spent time adoring his name, and now you listen, now you know who you're dealing with. You're the God of creation, the sovereign one over all things. Probably a better idea to let you be in control. And so I surrender to your will. This is a hard thing for Americans, but it's very, very Christian. So personal surrender, number two, is parental trust. In other words, not only are you saying, I don't want to be king, but when you say your will be done, what you're saying is, I believe that you know better than I. (laughs) Again, the absence of pride here. God, I'm acknowledging that you know better for my life than I know. So before I even tell you what I think I need, before I even ask for a thing, before I even make a request, I just want this to be known. You know better than I do. So, if I ask for something that isn't the best for me according to your will, so be it. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 8. Verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Do not be like them, that is, like the, the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Isn't that encouraging? God's like, Yeah, I know. In fact, I know a whole lot more than you know. I get it. Now, now, now before you misapply this, listen, um, knowing that God knows is, is not something that should keep you from praying. It's something that should give you assurance in your praying. In other words, the wrong approach would be, like, well, if God already knows what I need, I'm not even going to ask. Hello, num-num. Jesus says, Ask. But ask with the assurance that he knows better than you. Which is why you're saying your will, not mine. Do you see? Notice this on the screen. You would ask for the very thing God gives you if you knew all he knew. Now just chew on that mentally for a while. You would have asked for the exact thing he gave you if you knew everything he knew. But the reason why you thought the outcome should have been different is because you don't know what he knows. He knows best. And so that's why we pray, your will, not mine. And part of praying this is saying to God, God, I promise to accept your will whether I understand it or not. If this makes sense to me or it doesn't make sense to me, I want sincerely your will, not my own And then lastly, of what it means to pray this part of the Lord's Prayer, is a patient longing. A patient longing that is, I'm ready for this kingdom to pass away. I'm ready for the fullness of your kingdom. God, I want your kingdom now. Anybody ever felt that in prayer? Many of the things that we pray about ought to remind us that this life is not how it's supposed to be. Now just think about that. I think that's really helpful, so stop for just a moment. Many of the things that you bring to God in, in request are coming out of a place of brokenness. They're, they're coming out of a this world is not the way it's supposed to be, which is why you're seeking for healing in that thing. Just take that as an example. God would you heal me of this disease. Okay, well, why does disease exist in the first place? Because we live in a fallen world. So part of what you're, I hope you're seeing the connection, part of what you're bringing to God often in your request is an acknowledgement that you're ready for this kingdom to be over and for His kingdom to come. Because then there'll be no more tears, and then there'll be no more disease, and then there'll be no need for you to ask for most of what you ask for. Because life will be how it is supposed to be under King Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So it's a patient longing. That is, I can't wait for a day when things are made right. Most of you have heard of the importance of REM sleep, rapid eye movement. It's throughout the different stages of sleep. This is where rest really happens. And I would argue that it's this section of the Lord's Prayer that's like the REM sleep. When you get to this point where you can say, God, it's your will, not my will. It's your way, not my way. It's your kingdom, not my kingdom. You're in control. I'm not in control. That's when you actually get to the point of rest. That's when you actually enter to the REM peace. So now that you move forward and make your request to God, you're doing it not in a sense of, it's got, it's got to be this, it's got to be that, it's got to happen this way. Now, after adoring His name and accepting His will, you're finally at peace before you've requested anything. Have you noticed that we are halfway through the prayer and you haven't even requested anything about yourself yet? that's telling, isn't it? You've spent time adoring him, which helps you accept the fact that his will is greater than yours. And now that you've spent time adoring and accepting, you can move on to this final section, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The third section here is that Christian prayer asks for God's help. Right? It adores God's name, it accepts God's will, and then it asks for God's help. Jesus is not opposed for you to make requests. He's opposed of you making requests as though your life is the center of the universe. Do you see that? Do you see that in the Lord's Prayer? God wants you to make requests. The Bible teaches you to make requests. It's all over the Bible. Uh, but, but Jesus is saying, but you're not praying like the religious, and you're not play, praying like the irreligious. You're praying like a Christian, someone who's known the love of God. And that's why, before you ever make a request, you praise Him, and you accept that he knows better than you, and then, rest in this reality, you are praying to a father who loves to take care of you, like he can't wait for you to express to him how much you need him, and if you're like, that just sounds weird, go back to the Lewis quote, no, we delight to praise what we enjoy, all of that for Lewis came out of a struggling with God, calling us to be focused on God. And Lewis is like, actually, that's not strange at all. Because you ought to want to delight and, and praise the thing you enjoy the most. Which is what it means to be a Christian. Amen? Look at what Jesus is going to say later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 7 of chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says this, "'Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent?' Oh, verse 11 is amazing. If you then, who are evil, how's that for politically correct? Jesus is like, if you, by the way, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? I don't know about you, but I love spoiling my kids. I, I probably spoil them too much and sometimes like in Christmas or whatever. I love to take care of my kids. I love to get them things and do things for them. And I know some of you resonate with that with me. Like I find so much joy in that. And here's what I need to remember. If that's true of me, who apart from God is evil. How much more will God do for me who is perfect? Amen. He's all for your request, and he wants to take care of you, and he wants to give you what you need. It might just be different than what you think you need. Do you see? So let's unpack this last piece real quick. I think we've got an hour and a half left of the two hours I told you we'd take. There's so much, and I debated should I do multiple weeks on this, but I wanted to do all of it together. So let's unpack what does it mean in this asking for God's help. There are three things here that we're asking for. I don't think this is an exclusive list. Jesus is just teaching us. He's giving us a model. These are the kinds of things that you would request. First, daily provision, daily provision. The phrase literally means give us the bread we need for the day. Give us our daily bread. And as many of you know, Jesus is speaking to people who had no guarantees of food. Few countries in history have had the abundance of food that we do. And we tonight can go into Costco's or Sam's or we can go to Byerly's and we can buy food for the entire week or month. We can go to a buffet after service tonight and we can eat till we can't walk. But that's not how most cultures and most civilizations have been. And so in the ancient Near East, this idea is, I don't know if I'm going to eat tomorrow. I don't know necessarily how I will feed my family next week. And so there's a, there's a daily need from God. God, I need you to feed me. I need you to provide for what I'm desperate for. Without you, I don't eat. Because God, you're the one that controls the crops, you control the weather, that controls the crops, like all of this is under your sovereign hand. so feed me or I starve. And Maybe for you it's not food, but I would ask you this, what is it in your life that causes you to daily live by faith? What is it in your life that causes you to daily live by faith that makes you desperate? Is it a financial situation? Is it a relational situation? Because I would argue this, listen Faith Family, if you don't have any area in your life where you are having to exercise desperate faith and desperate prayer, you are not relating to God as Father. But Christian prayer comes to God and says, God, I need you, and if you don't act to take care of me, I don't survive. Daily, Provision. Second is faithful practice. Faithful practice. The phrase is forgive us as we forgive others. The phrase literally means this, uh, help me forgive others as I've been forgiven. That's the idea here in this prayer. In other words, it's not a transactional relationship with God that you'll forgive me if I forgive others, and it's just kind of back and forth. That's not the heart of the prayer, and I'll give you an example to prove that in just a moment. The idea is this, as I have experienced these things in you, like forgiveness, help me express these things to others. Are you with me? As I have experienced your forgiveness, help me forgive others in the same way. As I have have been loved by you, help me love others in the same way. As you have been so generous to me, help me be generous to others in the same way. That's the idea here. And you say, prove it. Okay. Well, do you remember in Matthew 18 when Jesus tells the story about forgiveness? Remember, we talked about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount of a man that was forgiven an insurmountable debt an impossible debt, a multiple lifetimes amount of debt. Do you remember that? And, 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 and he was just forgiven of all of it. And then what happens? He goes out to a, another servant who owes him just a little bit and refuses to forgive. And the whole point of that parable is to teach us that we are to practice towards others what we have experienced from God. And, and, and can, can I, like I was kind of transparent last week with motivation, right? Can I just be transparent again here? If God doesn't help me do that, there's no chance that happens in my life. I don't have a chance at forgiving you the way God has forgiven me if he doesn't help me do that. Are you kidding me? There is no way. There's no way I'm loving you the way God has loved me if God doesn't help me do that. Anybody with me? It's impossible. And that's why I pray. God, forgive me as I forgive others. God, as you have loved me, help me do what I can't do and love the way you've loved me me. Here's the point. We need God's help to live out our faith. And daily, we ought to be asking God's help to live out and to faithfully practice the faith we have in Christ. Thirdly and finally is spiritual protection, daily provision, faithful practice, and spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The idea here of temptation can mean tempting or testing. The phrase here of the evil one can mean deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Uh, here, Here is Uh, Let me just quickly summarize, because I need to wrap this up. We do actually have another service tonight, so I wish we had the two hours. But here's the idea. Uh, In every temptation, there's a testing. We were going to go to James 1, but we don't have time to go there. But write this down in your notes if you're taking notes. James 1, 12 through 15, that's the verse that backs up what I'm about to say, is that in every testing there's a temptation. Okay. So God brings His people through times of testing, right? We see that throughout Scripture. And in the testing, which God is doing for good, the evil one will come in that testing and bring temptation whereby we can follow that desire, follow that, that way, and then that's what gives into sin. Because James talks about God is not the one who leads you to sin, okay? God may test you, but it's the evil one that brings the temptation through your desires in that time of testing to try to lead you away. Is that not what he did to Jesus? Okay? Jesus is being tested, and in that testing, the evil one came and tempted Jesus, but Jesus didn't follow those desires. So here's what this request is, and then we'll, we'll land the plane. Here's the prayer. You ready? God, in the test, don't let me fall into the evil one's temptation. In the testing, which is daily, weekly, okay? okay it could be somebody cuts you off in road rage, hypothetically, right? And, and, and in that moment of testing, your desire is what? Uh, we won't say that on camera, right? It, but it's to say things that maybe you shouldn't say. And, and the prayer is, God help me because in that moment, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to give in to that desire. I, I'm going to follow that path, okay? I, I'm going I'm to be, be led away by that desire. So God, in the testing, don't let me fall into the evil one's temptation." Are you getting the Lord's Prayer? We're adoring God's name. And then because of that, we accept God's will because He knows better than we do. And then we make our request. Things like daily provision that we need, help to live out our faith and practice to others what God has done for us and to walk in victory protected by His grace. One final point I want to make and then we'll close is that Christian prayer is motivated by God's grace. Christian prayer is motivated by God's grace. I say that because we cannot pull out the Lord's prayer of its context, okay? Jesus is not teaching along in the Sermon on the Mount and then like, hey, stop for just a minute. You know, there's this whole merchandise thing, and people are going to want to make t-shirts and coffee cups, so I, I need to kind of say this prayer because it's going to be a big seller, Okay? <laughs> So so let me say this because people are going to want to repeat this before basketball games and then just continues on with the sermon. No, the Lord's Prayer is a part of the point that Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the point that Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount? The only way you get into the kingdom is by the grace of God. You don't become a, a disciple of Jesus by your own righteousness, but by your poverty of spirit acknowledging that you are penniless and it is only by God's grace that you get the kingdom of heaven beatitudes. And then later on, as we've looked at in chapter 5, do you want to enter in the kingdom? Sure, that's fine. You just have to be perfect. You got to be better than the best. You have to be as perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what is Jesus doing? He's raising the bar so high that you see, there's no way I could jump that. My righteousness could never on my own be greater than that. But there is one, chapter 5, verse 17, who has fulfilled the law. And he's the only way to get the kingdom. Which means what? Which means what, faith family? The reason we approach God, the way in which we approach God. And some of you are like, you left a section out in the Lord's Prayer. That's because I saved it for this. It's because of the grace of God that you are not approaching him as boss, as dictator, or as distant deity. But you are approaching him as, say it, father. Because you have experienced His grace. You've experienced the love of the Heavenly Father. And because this relationship that makes this prayer possible has been based on grace, you are coming to Him in love. And that's why you're happy to make the prayer about Him. Because you delight to praise the one you love because you enjoy to exalt the one your heart loves most because you are his child and he is your Abba and that's true only because of your faith in the son Jesus Christ the one who not only taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, the one who actually lived the Lord's Prayer. Remember when he was tempted by the evil one in the desert? And what was he tempted with? Bread. And Jesus prayed Man shall not live by bread alone, and Jesus was delivered from the evil one. And that night in the garden of Gethsemane, where the agony of God's will became absolutely clear, and Jesus prayed what? Not my will, but yours. And when Jesus was faced with the reality of the cross, Jesus prayed this, My soul is troubled and what I shall say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Why? Why did Jesus come to that hour? Listen. Father, glorify your name. Show your name to be hallowed to the ends of the earth. Jesus didn't just teach the Lord's Prayer. He lived the Lord's Prayer. And why did Jesus live this prayer and pray this prayer throughout his life? Because his greatest joy in life was not pleasing himself. It was praising his Father. C.S. Lewis is exactly right. We delight to praise what we enjoy. And that's the key to Christian prayer. We delight to hallow His name. We delight for His will to be done. We delight to receive His care because He is our Father, the one we truly love. Amen?